Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 487 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. I've got so much in store for you today. It has been a very busy week at the Australian Writers' Centre. Thank you for those of you who came to our free event, Writing for Children of All Ages. It was mammoth. Between Zoom and streaming live into Facebook, we had over 900 people attend, and I hope you found it interesting. This week, the fun continues. I think it's because it's winter here and it's kind of cold and we had to endure that rain on the East Coast for so long. I decided to plan a few events for you guys so you didn't go stir crazy at home. So this week, you're all invited to a blog party. We're having a big night in. You don't even have to leave your home and you can participate for anywhere in Australia or anywhere in the world. It was great to see people from America and the Netherlands and Asia and all sorts of other countries at last week's event, Writing for Children of All Ages. But this week, it's a party. It's on Friday night at 7.30pm Sydney time on Zoom and it's free. The theme is how to become a successful author. Now that's Friday the 24th of June and I'm bringing to you not one, not two, but three best-selling authors in real time, live, so that you can ask your questions and participate in the conversation if you want. So we have the wonderful Kate Forsyth, who was recently voted one of Australia's favourite novelists. Now, Kate Forsyth has also been called one of the finest writers of this generation. She's written more than 40 books. So what a wonderful opportunity to chat to somebody who can tell you how to have longevity in your career, right? She's written across all ages, across genres, published in 20 countries. Now, her most recent book is The Crimson Thread. And her other novels include The Blue Rose, Beauty in Thorns, Bitter Greens, which won the American Library Association Award for Best Historical Fiction, and so many more. We also have the incredibly talented Angela Slater, who is a multi-award winning author. Her latest novel is The Path of Thorns, and she's also written the gothic fairy tale novel All the Murmuring Bones and The Tallow Wife and Other Tales, and more. And we can reveal, it's just been announced, she's writing the comics for the iconic Hellboy series. So awesome. Of course, we also have the inimitable Pamela Freeman, also known as Pamela Hart. I always learn something when I talk to Pamela. Her latest book is An A-List for Death, and this follows Digging Up Dirt, which is the first in the Poppy McGowan mystery series, an awesome series. She also publishes Regency romance novellas, and she's written historical novels and nonfiction and has developed an incredible career as a full-time author, so we have lots to learn from her. So, can you imagine... You're invited to a big night in with these awesome authors. You do have to RSVP to the Zoom if you want the link. So make sure you do that. And it's at writerscenter.com.au slash RSVP. That's writerscenter.com.au RSVP. We'll put, also put the link in the show notes or head to the special events section on the website. There will be prizes, there'll be giveaways, there'll be lots of fun. You'll have to bring your own beverage though, (laughs) because you'll be coming to us from home. 
Or, hey, you can join us for dinner even. Bring your dinner. Anyway, I'll see you at the party. Now, moving on to this week's writing tip, which comes from a great post on our blog from the always fabulous Alison Tate, and it's called How I Found My Writing Community. This is a question that comes up a lot with people who are interested in getting into a writing community, but they don't know where to start. So Alison asked nine authors how exactly they found their writing tribe. Now, the simple answer is you've got to get out there. You've got to put it out there. You attend events, you go to literary festivals or book launches or events run by your local library or writing communities or writing courses. A lot of people form writing groups and form a writing community from our writing courses. You get active on social media and so on. Just by showing up, which is what author Alison Rushby recommends, you know, just showing up to events, you will meet other people. You start talking, you have a laugh, you find other people, you know, who are just like you, who are like-minded, who are really into writing. But I do understand that it's not always that easy. And that's why I love the advice from children's author Belinda Murrell. She recommends volunteering at a literary event. Now, a friend of mine recently did this and she had a great time. She herself, Belinda, has volunteered on the CBCA Northern Sydney Committee for 14 years, running events to promote children's literacy. And it's such a great way to connect with other writerly type people in your community. Now, you can read that post on our blog, and we also have a post especially for introverts or anyone who is a bit shy about attending a literary event, which I know a lot of people will be interested in, so you can check that out. It's called Nine Ways to Squash Your Shyness at Literary Events. And of course, one of the best ways to find your writing community is to join one of our novel writing programs at the Australian Writers' Centre. Graduates of our Write Your Novel program often find their lifelong writing partners in the group, and they go on to keep workshopping together for years to come. If you're not quite ready to write a whole novel, and I totally get that, you can also meet with other like-minded writers in our course Writing Workout. It's called Writing Workout. Now, that's where you meet fortnightly with other writers online. We facilitate it on Zoom and you receive regular live feedback from your very experienced presenter, of course. You can find out more about that at writercenter.com.au slash workout. Now let's move on to our competition this week. I thought this book was so interesting. I bought it for my partner and I'm also organizing a giveaway for you guys. We have three copies of About Time by David Rooney to give away. Now regular listeners will know that I do love some good nonfiction and this is exactly that. A horological history of human civilization told through 12 world-changing clocks. Since the dawn of civilization... We have kept time, but time has always been against us. From the city sundials of ancient Rome to the era of the smartwatch, clocks have been used throughout history to wield power, make money, govern citizens and keep control. In About Time, time expert David Rooney tells the story of timekeeping and how it continues to shape our modern world. This is the story of time, and the story of time is the story of us. Now, you could win one of three copies of About Time by David Rooney. Just go to writercentre.com.au slash win and follow the instructions. Entries close on the 27th of June. So that's writercentre.com.au slash win. Before we move to my favourite part of the show, I have a fun fact for you. 
The famous children's book Green Eggs and Ham, which I loved, of course, when I was a kid, was written by Dr. Seuss as a bet. His publisher bet him $50 that he couldn't write a book that kids would love using only 50 different words. So Dr. Seuss took up the challenge and the result was Green Eggs and Ham, which has 49 monosyllabic words and the 50th word is the three-syllable word anywhere. And if you're wondering, the publisher never paid up on the bet. Oh, now. Are you ready for the word of the week? I hope so, because I'm ready to let you know what it is. It is addend. That's A-D-D-E-N-D, addend. Do you know what it means? Addend means any set of numbers which are to be added, or a number that is added to another number. So although it's a mathematical term, I think you could use it maybe in a more literary way. For example, Brian and Rosalind were adends in the formula of their romance. Okay, maybe not. And that was the word of the week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au forward slash book. In this week's episode, I've been talking to Kelly Rimmer, author of The German Wife. Her books have been translated into 25 languages. She has sold over 2 million copies. She's been a New York Times bestseller, and she lives in the central west of New South Wales. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kelly. It is my pleasure to be here, Valerie. Thank you. I'm so excited. Congratulations about your latest book, The German Wife. Oh, thank you. Look, I've, I have so many questions, but just for the benefit of our listeners, if they haven't got a copy yet, what is it about? It is a story of these two women who um, have these, you know, quite diverse backgrounds. We've got a woman, Sophie, who is uh, in Germany through the uh, rise of the Nazi party in Germany and through the war years. And then we've got a woman, Lizzie, who is in Northwest Texas. She grows up on this farm. Then, you know, of course, the Dust Bowl years come. And they, from these really diverse backgrounds, they happen to meet in Huntsville in 1950 when Sophie's husband, Jürgen, is brought to America under the Operation Paperclip program to work on the US space program. And kind of from their first meeting, they clash, their worlds collide, and there's this incredible conflict. Um, But as we get to know them through their histories, we realise that they might have a little bit more in common than we first think. That's that's about it. Such a gripping story. Now, the thing is, though, there's Germany, there's Texas, there's Huntsville. But tell me where you live, Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) I live in Mullion Creek, which is a little village outside of Orange that doesn't even have a main street. (laughs) Um, Definitely not any of those places. (laughs) Um. (laughs) So this is Orange in New South Wales in Australia. How in the world did this, the idea for this book come about? It's so far away from your current experience. 
Yes, it is. But the idea actually came from Parks, which is about an hour and a half away from me. I It was the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And one of my friends said, there's a festival, let's take the kids. So we jumped in the car and off we went. And I'm wandering around at, at the dish at the um, Parks Radio Telescope. And there was this, uh, like an exhibit in a marquee about the history of the moon landing. And there was a sentence in an, in an exhibit there that said, you know, from 1950, German scientists and American scientists worked together to design the vehicle that eventually got mankind to the moon. And I, I, I can't remember which of my books I was writing at that stage, but it was a World War II novel because my last few have been. And I stopped at that exhibit and just stared at that sentence for like five minutes thinking, how on earth did that happen? Like five years after the end of the war, how did these German scientists, some of them Nazi scientists, I quickly discovered, end up in America working on the American space program? And so out of that fascination, here we are. <laughs> wow. So you started researching and you, but did you know at that point, oh, there's a novel in there? Or did you just think, oh, that's interesting. I might go Google. No, it's kind of my nature now to get these flares of curiosity, you know, because my books are so research heavy and it's actually probably one of the parts of the process I love the most. So, you know, in this case, there was this spark of like, I need to understand this. And as, as we were driving back, I actually was on the phone trying to Google and, you know, rural phone service is so bad. I was getting really <laughs> angry because my phone wouldn't tell me what I needed to know. Um, but I quickly realized there was something there because I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of Operation Paperclip. I had no idea. I mean, I kind of knew there was some German link, but I didn't realize just how controversial and fascinating and heartbreaking it is. So, mm. yeah, here we are. But beyond just that concept that there were Germans, some Nazis um, uh, in America doing this research work, you have crafted this incredibly full story with all of the other characters that were involved because that 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 um, information in itself about the Germans working there is interesting, but how did you then flesh it out into something so much more? I I was I quickly became fascinated about who these people might have been. You know, we it's easy to forget sometimes, especially when you're in conflict with someone, that they aren't just the person they are in that moment, that they're the sum of this whole history that has shaped them and informed them the same way that my history shaped and informed me. And so I kind of wanted to go on the journey with these characters. I knew that mm -hmm. they would meet and clash straight away and I wanted to understand where they're coming from. And so the, the way quickly realized that the way to do that was to dig deep back into their past and kind of start them at the same point and have this, I have this, you know, there's really four narratives in this book. There's a, there's a, more contemporary narrative in 1950 from each of my main characters and then there's their backstory which they which are kind of in alternating chapters and mm. by structuring the novel that way I could dig deep down and show the reader where the parallels are and, and you know and for myself as well come to learn the characters and know them through walking through their history with them. So how from you know somewhere near Orange in rural New South Wales, do you do this kind of research of all of these places and all of these time periods? Yeah, it would have been much easier if I could have jumped on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, this this I mean the thing is my last few novels have both been my last book, The Warsaw Orphan, was mm. set in Poland through the last few years of the war and straight after the war. And I the previous book to that, or a few books back, I actually went to Poland and did a research trip and it added such depth to what I was writing. And I so I, I would love to have done that again, but of course not practical last year when I was writing this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a case of going back to really at the end of the day, my research kind of comes down to photographs oral histories and mm. I can I can spin a scene from a good photo and particularly if I can find some audio of someone talking about their experience or, or you know a first-hand account like a journal or a diary or, mm. or someone's you know essay that they've written it it is for me the whole process is research daydream write you know learn right. what the scene would have looked like try and live in it myself in my mind you know as I'm walking as I'm doing housework as I'm going to sleep I think of these things over and over again and then I can write the story wow so where for example where would you find oral histories where would you hear the audio where do you go delving what's your go-to and then what are some rabbit hole destinations that you typically go to <laughs> yeah I try and avoid YouTube <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'll go, oh, I might see if I can find an oral history of someone who survived XYZ or who lived through XYZ. Next thing you know, I'm watching cute cat videos. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we are really, really lucky that we are living and writing at this moment in time because mm. there is a wealth of information about really the most obscure things online. And I, for, for this book, that you know, there were some Holocaust libraries that I always find myself spending hours and hours being heartbroken on. Um, I ordered, <laughs> I think they've flagged my account at Booktopia as some kind of VIP because I'm just ordering every book I can think. Um, <laughs> and in terms of uh, oral histories, there are even podcasts now for not so much for this book, but for one of my other recent books, I think I listened to about 200 hours of audio about a particular subject because there was this amazing podcast where someone had traveled around the U S interviewing people on the subject that I was writing on. Um, And there's nothing better than that or photographs, photographs, Mm -hmm. because you can stare at a photograph and there's so much you can learn. You know, you can learn about the person in the foreground, the buildings, the style of dress, the expression on their faces. And these things just help you to make these more vivid scenes in the book. Mm. Now you've written several historical novels. You've written several contemporary novels. You have passed the 1 million book sale mark. Yes. That's Fantastic. Congratulations. I think we're at 2 million. We might that's, have just over 2 million. It's wild. That's incredible. It's absolutely insane. I know. I can't believe it. It's like, how did this even happen? <laughs> how did this even happen? So oh. take me back before it was anywhere near. So that's 2 million. That's amazing. So take me back to um, your previous career. Just tell us what your previous career was. <laughs> um, my last job before I, I started writing full-time a few years ago, I was actually working for an Australian software developer for their American team from Australia. <laughs> so I was working for this amazing place um, that develops a business intelligence software. Super nerdy, like completely distant from writing. Couldn't have been any more like, you know, disparate. Uh, and I was, I often did project management. So I was the person saying, meet this deadline, do this task. And now here I am, the writer that has an editor constantly going, oh, the deadline. So <laughs> <laughs> what happened to that? It's like I have two brains and one just decommissioned when I left that job. And now I'm just this fluffy creative. Um, 
<laughs> so the story goes so that I had I was a lifelong writer I wrote for fun and never I've always wanted to be published but it seemed impossible and I was quite conscious that uh, I was a sensitive person who loved writing probably more than any other thing I've ever experienced and I worried that if I was published and got negative feedback I wouldn't love it anymore so for all of these years it was just my secret hobby like didn't even tell there was a flatmate that um, I lived with for years and I used to write on our shared computer at night never told her what I was doing um, because I was kind of embarrassed about it like who do I think I am that someone might want to read one of my stories you know which is in hindsight just so ridiculous but I say it because I know there's other people who think that way you know it is particularly for us as women writers it, you can kind of internalize this like I don't know like a like it just feels so bold to think that you might <laughs> capture someone's attention with a story um, but I gradually, I had, I had this like mental um, milestone in my head. I promised myself by the time I'm 35, I'm going to be published or at least try. And then I, it really was like I woke up one day and it was my, I think, 33rd birthday. And I was like, oh, my goodness, no one's even ever read my books, like my stories. Uh, no, I've never even tried. Like, and 35 is not that far away. Mm-hmm. So I self-published a book on Amazon that day which is don't do it, it, anyone. Like (laughs) I had, I had actually, it's not true that no one had ever read them because I'd had an editor look at that one 10 years earlier. Um, But don't do that. That that was such a bad idea. But 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 tell us why it was a bad idea. Tell us why it was a bad idea. Oh, I hadn't, I didn't have a good cover. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just a nerd who figured, well, if it's Amazon, I can probably figure it out. And I did, but I didn't format it right. Hadn't been proofread. Like there are many, many layers of editing that should go into something that goes, you know, a book that goes up for sale. And I got good feedback about that book and I got bad feedback about that book. From readers? From readers, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I survived. I was like, one day I got an email and it said something like, this was the worst book I'd ever read. And I was like, oh, okay. Like this was the thing that held me back for all these years. And when it happened, I didn't even, it just was like, it's subjective. Of course, people, not everyone's going to like it. Why was I scared of this for so long? So that gave me the confidence to let some friends read, you know, to admit to people that this was my hobby (laughs) and to let some friends read. And then from there, they, you know, puffed me up because, you know, that's what you want your Mm. friends to do. And one night we'd been out at dinner, had a few wines, and they'd been reading a manuscript that I'd been working on for, you know, again, 10 years. And they were all saying, oh, it's so good. You know, it'd make a great book. So I sent it off to a publisher that night at like 3 a.m. after being out (laughs) at dinner. And I think you're should, a bit impulsive. <laughs> I'm not actually. It just was this like 20 years of wanting just built up. But <laughs> it um they took it. Like so, and that was my Fantastic. first book. Mm. So that's how it happened. And from there, you know, I've had different publishers and published digitally yes. first. Um, but here we are. So Wild. those first books, were they the ones that were set in the tech? In, in no, the, in the they tech weren't. World? Um, that um, came later. So my first few books were all set in Australia and they were kind of issue driven. One book was about forced adoption and one book, contemporary novel. Oh, well, actually, that was partly historical, but they were quite different to what I'm writing now. Same voice, mm. et cetera, and same process, but um, but different kind of settings. So you've changed kind of um, themes. Well, not themes. You've changed the 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 genre in which people put you in, in bookshops. <laughs> so you so what you started, then you had some one set in the tech world, contemporary mm-hmm. tech world, mm-hmm. and now you do historical. How? Did, what made you decide to change? 
yeah, it was an it was an accident. I didn't, and I actually don't think of myself so much as a historical novelist. I just like writing about people. And what mm. happened? My I had this idea. I wanted to explore my own family heritage. My grandparents were Polish Catholics and they were displaced by the war, but we never really knew anything about their story because like many Australians of that generation, they kind of got off the boat at Fremantle and then it was like day one of their new life. We never really knew what had happened to them, Um, but they both died when I was quite young, so I couldn't just ask them. So I started writing probably about 13 years ago. I started working on this story that, just as a vehicle for research to try and imagine what they might have been through. And that became my book, The Things We Cannot Say, which was my, that was a book that kind of changed everything, to be honest. It was my first New York Times bestseller. It was the first book that I really felt like I it felt serious enough that I could kind of justify it myself going to Poland doing, mm. you know, meeting with historians and doing all of these things that I dreamed of for years. Um, and then after that, I, I don't know, there was something about history, especially at this point in time when the world feels so unstable. It's just really captured my imagination in this way that I'm I'm not unhappy to be writing historical novels, but I still am just writing about people. And it just so happens that I keep looking back to try and understand how we got here and and what, you know, what we have and haven't learned from the past. So that's how it happened. Do you remember the phone call or email or whatever it was that said you're a New York Times bestseller? Oh, I got I get chills just hearing that because it <laughs> even as Australians, it means something. Like it doesn't, you know, and really at the end of the day, like, you know, just quietly between you and I, <laughs> really the writer doesn't have that much to do with that. Like it is the work of a great team at the publisher and it is the work of great marketers and booksellers and but we get the kudos when it happens. I think you're underselling yourself somehow. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, there are lots of talented writers that can't get contracts and that's true. And there are there are writers who have success who, you know, don't necessarily appreciate it necessarily. But I was at my mum and dad's when that call came from my agent and I screamed and then I cried. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> typical. <laughs> All right, so let's get back to this book. Now, as we've mentioned, there's Sophie, there's Lizzie, there's different stories, but as you mentioned, different timelines. Yes. Now, that if I was, if somebody told me to write a book like that, <laughs> that would stress me out. What did you do from a planning point of view just to work out what was going on where and, you know, how did you work, how did you, yeah, plan that out? I use this software called Aon Timeline and I've used it for since, the things we cannot say. So I've used it for three, one, two, three, four books, and I everything goes in there: births, deaths, marriages, wow. historic events, so that I have this incredibly complex timeline, and I can make sure the history lines up with the events of the story. I couldn't track it now. I used to try and do it on paper, but now these stories are too complex, particularly this one, because I had, it really was like writing three books at once. And Mm. there were many times in the writing of it when I thought, why have I done this to myself? This is too hard. (laughs) Um, So, you know, because I was looking at the the Dust Bowl years in the US and the depression and then in all of the events leading up to World War II and then through World War II, it's almost like a different world to what was happening in Germany Mm. through those years. So, and then I had, of course, the, the 1950s timeline, which in itself had some challenges so yep aeon timeline it's called between that and scrivener that's my whole world on the computer (laughs) wow and so but what then do you how in terms of the arc of the Mm -hmm. characters because you've got things running at the same time and things you know um um in in different times how do you decide 
you, you see, you've plotted out per per character on A on timeline, mm-hmm. but then how do you decide what are the events that are going in the linear fashion in which the reader is reading it? <laughs> yeah, I actually wrote this book. This is the first time I've done this, and I don't know if I'll ever do it again. But I wrote it chronologically and then chopped it up. So I wrote it kind of dual time, dual dual narrative. I was switching between. Lizzie and Sophie, but I started in 1930 and then went all the way through oh, the end of 1915. And then, I, then I, you know, I talked to my editor and I was like, I could leave it like this. And she was like, no, why don't we try, you know, making it more like a dual narrative? And then we chopped it all up or I chopped it all up. And then I, there were events that I, what I really, I've thought if I could make it work, what would be ideal would be if the event which informs the behaviour in the 1950s timeline is revealed to the reader around the same time as the behaviour. So where there were things in the past that shaped these women, I wanted to show the reader why and how, you know, so Mm. so it wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be between I couldn't have done it without Scrivener either because, was, you know, of course in Scrivener you can move things around so much easier. Um, mm. But it was about, it really was about going back to first principle of the book, which was showing the history of these women, showing how they became who they became, and then it, then it just fell into place. Okay, so you wrote it chronologically first and then you moved it around. Yeah. Um, when you then, did you have to set, a, set it aside for a while to come back and see whether the chopped version worked because it does and because when you when you hear oh it's going to be chopped and it's going to go from here to there I mean um, um, later to earlier to whatever you kind of think oh am I going to get confused but you don't as a reader you don't get confused but there is a risk that you will because I've read books where I'm just completely lost so what did you do to ensure that was gonna wasn't going to happen that's a really good question and it was something I really worried about. At one mm. point I was thinking I'm asking a lot of the reader in this book. Um, they do have, you know, there's some books where you can read and, and it is just fluid and you don't have to think about where you're up to in the timeline and those books are great. But I, at the end of the day I came to the conclusion that there are some times when you have to trust the reader and, you know, put your confidence in the reader to, to follow you on a journey um, and it won't, it won't work for everybody. It really won't. It, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you could follow it. But there will be some people who go, oh, that doesn't, you know, that everyone's, it is. Oh, no, I think it really works. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was, you know, these women go on such a journey. Like these mm. timelines, as much as it is all jumbled up together now, these periods are so distinct. Like the, the Lizzie mm. that we meet in her chapters in 1930 is so different to this fierce woman in 1950 and so I think even even just asking the reader to jump from from fierce Lizzie in 1950 back to this farmer's daughter who just wants to farm and that's all she wants in the world and she loves her family and her little patch of earth and that's her whole world that they really are it's almost like they're different characters and so the evolution I think by the time they get to the real changes the reader's probably quite used to being in their head so I don't know it's part of its gut feel too and you know, practice mm. and lots of reading and all those things. Yes. So when you were working in the software company, at what point did you go, this is going to be my full-time job now? What was the trigger that made you think I can do this full-time? Um, my my second book had this incredible run when it first came out and the the sales volume was like, uh, like I, my first book, the night my first book came out, I remember saying to my husband, can you imagine if a thousand people had read my book? Like that just seemed like so far beyond <laughs> anything I could imagine. And then the second book was selling this 
huge amount of books and it was it found this great audience in the US and it I was turning down opportunities in the writing world so that I could do my part-time job that I liked and really enjoyed but it wasn't my passion the the, the so, software the software job yeah so yeah. I realized it felt a little bit like life was pushing me towards my dream, which it is and always was. Um, and so uh, I remember distinctly the conversation with my husband at lunch one day. We went out for lunch and we sat in this little cafe, the cafe where we went for our first date. <laughs> and I said to him, I think it's time. This isn't, you know, I was working I had been working full time. We had two very young children. I was writing in the middle of the night to meet my deadlines and I was making, you know, enough money that it made sense. So off we went and it was a big gamble. I said actually Mm. to him, we'll give it a year. After Mm. a year, I'll still know how to use a computer. Like (laughs) (laughs) now, not so much. I couldn't go back now. I'd have to retrain in something else. (laughs) But, um, But at the time, a year seemed like a reasonable gamble. And here we are, I think five or six years later. So now that you don't have to write in the middle of the night, mm, because I still you know, do. oh, you can, you still do. <laughs> but just give us a little bit of an idea of a typical writing day. So when you're in the depths of the manuscript, a manuscript, yes. how long do you write for? Do you aim for a word count goal? What's your routine? Walk us through the day. Yes, um, I dictate a lot in my first draft. I use what um, Dragon Dictate. I do. Yes, um, because why. Um, well, I like it because I, I want to, partly because I like it, actually. I didn't expect to. I started doing it because I was getting RSI from many, many uh-huh. hours typing. And I'm touch typist, type really fast, but I was like always at the computer. Um, and I, so I thought I'll try this, but it really suits me because I want a conversational style in my book. And I could, wow. you know, I talk a lot. <laughs> so um, <laughs> surprise, surprise, you might be <laughs> shocked to discover this halfway through this podcast that you're going to have to edit half of because it'll go for four hours. Um so it suits me to sit at the computer and feel like I'm, I want it to feel like when you pick up the book, I want it to feel like these characters are just sitting down with you over a cup of tea, telling you a story. So when I'm writing that first draft, I want to write it fast. It is a race, race to the finish line for me, not because of deadlines, but because I editing is actually where my strength is. So I need to do the first draft quickly and then edit it into something good. My first drafts are rubbish. They're absolute trash and they're meant to be. It just needs to be written and then I can mould it and shape it and uh, in, in refine it. So when I'm right, when I'm dictating, when I'm in that kind of first draft stage, I tend to work really long hours. I tend to do a lot of walks with the dog, which are, you know, thinking about how I can write the next scene. Um, and then from there, it's all on the keyboard and it becomes a little bit more structured. Once I kind of get to the end of the first draft, then I then it is about the, you know, that fun and mental work of refining, improving and making it make sense. And have you found that when you use Dragon Dictate, it is accurate enough for you to not get annoyed by it? Yep. Yeah. I now, especially, um, you know, first couple of maybe a couple of weeks, months, I wasn't convinced I was going to make it work. Um, in fact, at one point I tried just, I had a little like, you know, journalists, um, I can't remember what they're called, the little thing that you talk into and then you've got an audio recording. Yeah, the digital voice recorder. Yeah, yeah. And I was, so I tried that and sending it off to someone who transcribed it for me. Um, but, and that worked okay too, but dragon's obviously much more immediate. Um, and so I persisted for a little bit till I had it trained up and now I, um, have a 
quite a good microphone and mm-hmm. I have I've switched from my beloved Mac back to Windows because of you know they stopped supporting the Mac version and now mm-hmm. I reckon my accuracy would be 95 on a good wow. day like it I do often dictate with my hands on the keyboard which you're not technically supposed to do but then I do like if a word comes out wrong and I it's not convenient to edit it with my voice I'll do it with my fingers and I've got this kind of weird flow dictotyping dictotyping <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. but it. It, it works I don't know why it works it just does it really for me it really suits me all right so tell me about um the gestation period and the timeline for the creation of the German wife like when you got the idea how long it took to dictotype your first draft <laughs> how long you then spent in your own uh, level of editing before you sent it off to your publisher? Um, so the idea was June or July 2019. Um, so, mm-hmm. and then I probably started work on it in earnest oh, by about August, September. So I write a really detailed proposal outline mm-hmm. um, uh, and then I basically moved that into Scrivener. So, uh, you know, chop it up and they become my kind of, you know, bits of Scrivener and then I'm just expanding on the sentence that was in the outline becomes a scene in the, in the mm. book. Um, so, and I think I finished my first draft kind of mid last year, like as in, you know, ready for my agent. So probably first draft would have been finished by maybe January. And then of 2020. Months, yeah. Then months. Right. So it only took about four months or something to write. Maybe, maybe six. Maybe it was longer. Okay. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. it was February. Um, and then there's a lot of editing and this book, I will be completely honest with you. There were times when I thought I'm never going to make this book work. And part of it was, so this book took me probably longer and much, and you know, it's collaborative. Like I have the best agent in the world, hands down. She is a genius, um, and the best editor in the world. Um, and they, between the three of us, you know, there were times when I was, I can't get this to go. And there's, you know, because, and particularly Sophie's point of view was so much more challenging than I anticipated because, my readers and I are looking at her behaviour through the lens of someone who understands exactly where Germany gets to in World War II, but Sophie doesn't. And so she's mm. making decisions day to day that seem like the right thing to do and seem like the only option, but the reader's going to judge her through the lens of we know, we know mm. where this is going. And so getting her character arc right was probably the most challenging part of this book. And I reckon if I could just somehow quantify the time I spent on that, it would be six months. I They were mm-hmm. agonising over it, just trying to make it so that people understand she makes mistakes, she's not a perfect character, but day-to-day she doesn't really understand what the consequences of those mistakes are going to be. So she was tricky. Um yeah, so it was messy, this book. It was really messy because mm. I was constantly wrestling with her. Um, and, yeah, that's about that's about the timeline. Mm. When you are um, dictatyping, um, <laughs> how many hours I a day? I should copyright that, hey. Yeah, you should. <laughs> <laughs> how many hours a day would you spend doing that? And do you do it? Um, when you're writing first draft, are you fully immersed in first draft or are you fitting around other things like editing the previous book or, you know, whatever? Um, Yeah, it really depends. In an ideal world, if I didn't have any other commitments and every book was my first, (laughs) I would just work on the draft. I would do, and I have at times when it's been, when it's worked for my family, I've gone away for a retreat and then I just, because 
I, you can dictatype for 12 hours in a day. <laughs> Your hands do not get tired. But do you? Um, do you do that? Do yeah, you? that would be what? the ideal for me would be. I mean, I write in this little tiny home. I'm coming to you now from this little tiny home in a bush near my house. And uh, my ideal first draft would be just don't talk to me for like a month, six weeks. <laughs> just let me get it out. And then I'll come back and be a good wife and parent again. Of course, that's not practical, but that would suit me. That would be the best because it's about immersing myself, you know, and I've had to learn how to do it in shorter stints. Um, yes. You know, and now I can crack out a scene in, you know, I mean, the, the typing is much, <laughs> I can, I don't do I don't do daily work count because Oh, right. First of all, I, I overwrite like nothing else. Like my books are always, I'm editing out tens of thousands of superfluous words. Wow. Um, and part of that is, but I've come to make peace with it because not every word that you write is going to end up in the book, but every word you write is valuable because you're learning the characters and you're learning the world. And when when it comes to, it'd be much more efficient if I didn't have all those extra words. But when I'm pulling them out, I realise what I'm actually saying in each scene. And, you know, there's a scene that, a particular scene in the book where um, there's a, the Black Sunday dust storm hits Lizzie's farm. And that scene was probably twice as long when I first started. But I think when I pare it down, it feels urgent. But I've still mm. managed to capture the the terror and just the shock of it all. So I hope I have anyway. For me, it mm, works mm. now. So um, it's a really horribly inefficient process, but I'd love to just <laughs> live in my cabin in the woods, walk my dogs for 10 minutes in the morning and ride all day. <laughs> so you've referred to your, you know, your tiny home. Do you have a tiny house that's separate to your main house in which you dedicate, you dedicate that to writing? Yes. Oh, yep. how lovely. I know. It's the best. <laughs> it's so a gorgeous writer's <laughs> it's studio. It's the best. Yeah. My, it's so simple and um, it's like it's not fancy or elaborate at all, but it is just a space of my own, a room of one's own. Um, yes. And it's when I, it's like a flip into a different mode when I come in here. I had a meeting at 6 30 this morning. It was pouring down rain and I was walking out to get set up for the meeting. I was thinking, you know, I could just have a room in the house, <laughs> but mm. the rest of the time it is, it is the dream. It's amazing. Do you ever um, have writer's block? Writer's block for me usually means I haven't daydreamed enough. I mean, right. you know, if I, and then when I'm in that rush towards the finish line stage, I can, I do, but I skip it. If I get to a scene and it's not working, I'll write insert scene here or insert clever character development here. Cause I know that the first draft is going to be patchy and messy and ugly. And I know I'm going to be coming back. Some of those scenes I'm going to change. They aren't going to work in hindsight, you know? So I've just, again, it's something I've made peace with. If I, if I get stuck, it would take me five years to write a book. If every time I got to something tricky, I waited till it was flowing. So mm. I do get writer's block, but I just skip it. <laughs> so when, when you said before that you start off your first draft with a, a, an outline, like a fairly mm -hmm. comprehensive outline, then you kind of fill in the scenes. Mm -hmm. What does basically you're a plotter then? You know what's going to happen. Mm, Is that correct? 100%. 110%. I'm, I'm down to it's the like level having where a Gantt chart, like an a project management. Is. Maybe that part of my brain isn't dead, actually. Now that we talk about it. Um, I didn't used to do this, but I had a few of my early books with really horrific editing. And I realized that because character development is so important in my novels, I need to know what's going to happen in the character's life and how it's going to shape them before I start writing. And since since then, I've tended to have, you know, some are still, some come easy and some don't. 
like this book. But for the most part, that process works so much better for me. So I do know, but, it, but you know, knowing in this scene, um, Lizzie's going to meet her future husband, Cal. Knowing that does not know that I know exactly how the scene is going to look. So it's a difference between understanding basically what's happening in the plot and then understanding what the setting looks like. How can, you know, even if I don't describe the restaurant or the place that they're meeting mm. in the story, I want to know what it looks like, you mm. know. So, um, so yeah, it's a, that's, yeah. <laughs> Great. So the German wife, everyone, go get yourself a copy. Congratulations Thank to you. Kelly. I mean, Reaching the two million mark is just absolutely astounding. So I'm so thrilled for you. Let's end with what are your top three tips for aspiring writers who would love to leave their software project management job or whatever it is that they're in and be in a position where you are one day? Um, be, don't be afraid to write a book that you don't publish. It's like I've, I think I wrote probably a million words before I first have anyone ever read any of them? And then none of them are wasted because you're always learning from them. So I think you have to be willing to have a practice book or have a practice short story or whatever it is. You have to be. If you're so tied to the idea that this is the one, then you you know you might need to just learn from it sometimes, um, and that's valuable. Um, probably the other one. Oh, again, like my process is that I have very, very, very bad first drafts. <laughs> And that's okay. Like your first draft does not have to be, if you, if I really was editing as I went, I don't think like my first few chapters would be brilliant, but the book would never be finished. So, you know, messy first drafts are good and okay. And finally, yes, when you hit the end of the, of the first draft, then that's when the work starts. <laughs> like you've got to <laughs> revise and revise and revise and revise. And, you know, so, um, yeah, that, sorry. I don't know how useful that is, but for me, those three things have been kind of instrumental. Absolutely. Thank you so much and really appreciate your time today, Kelly. It's been great to meet you, Valerie. Thanks very much. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Historical Fiction, is perfect for anyone writing a novel or family history that's set in the past, giving you the tools to use research, facts and historical events to make your story come to life. When you're writing historical fiction, authenticity is everything. Just as each accurate detail can help immerse your reader in that time and place, a wrong step can quickly take them out again. In this course, you'll gain amazing insights, guidance and resources to help you research and craft a book that readers will love and you'll discover how to avoid the common mistakes that many new authors of historical fiction make. The lessons will shine a flashlight on the past, helping you to effectively research previous eras so you can weave compelling characters and details into your story. It's a valuable addition to your author toolkit. And because this is one of our online self-paced courses, you'll enjoy instant access and can learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash historical. That's writerscentre.com.au slash historical. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Kelly Rimmer. Now, I also hope you have a productive week and that I see you online at our blog party where you get to hang out with me and those three fabulous authors, Kate Forsyth, Angela Slater and Pamela Hart. Did you know that between them, they've published over 100 books? 
The event is called How to Become a Successful Author because, well, they are all successful authors. So I will be quizzing them on how they built their careers. So I'll see you on Friday, the 24th of June at 7.30 p.m. Sydney time for our big night in. Remember to RSVP at writercenter.com.au slash RSVP. This is a free event. Looking forward to having a drink with you. In the meantime, feel free to connect with me within the Facebook group if you haven't already joined. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. It's free. We'd love to have you in there. So many fantastic writers from all walks of life. And also feel free to connect with me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. You can check out all of the show notes at soyouwanttobearawriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.